Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Father, we come this morning uh, giving you our thanksgivings and our praises. We come recognizing all the good gifts that you have given us. Uh, that we have received from your hand, uh, most of all, the gift of your Son and the grace and love that we have in him, uh, the gift of transformation through the Holy Spirit uh, that we get to participate in and be the recipients of. Um, we come this morning with um, prayers for wisdom and courage and peace for um, all of our leaders in the nation and around the world. Likewise, we come with prayers for healing and comfort um, for people in our own lives, perhaps ourselves, um, who uh, need the um, courage and strength that your Spirit provides, um, the comfort that is true uh, from your Spirit. We pray, Father, that this morning as we worship, uh, that we would once again encounter you, that we would come to know you um, through the Scriptures through our songs, um, through the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. Uh, and then this encounter, we would be transformed, um, that we might have joy and joy to the full uh, and be able to live out um, our calling to spread the gospel um, and to be a blessing um, that is ours in Christ. We love you. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. You may notice a couple things are a little different this morning. Um, I am going to sit down today, which I learned in first service is a little bit of bad news because this is very relaxing. Like I can sit here for like three hours and just keep going just off the cuff. I'm getting shakes for no. Um, we'll just see how it works. Just wait till you hear the sermon, okay? Um, if you are a visitor with us, glad you are here. Um, glad to see you. Uh, it's a little bit of a different Sunday for us. Um, we're missing our worship pastor, and I'm missing a knee. And so we are thankful for technology like chairs and thankful for people like Matthew uh, and Michelle uh, who will step up and uh, lead worship for us. Um, so please, if you get a chance, let them know how thankful you are, too, because uh, um, Matthew um, has more than once not been able to fill in uh, just when we need him to. Um, does an amazing job. And Michelle, um, almost every week, does an amazing job for us. Um, if you're wondering what happened to the knee, I learned a lesson this week on Wednesday. Um, it took me two and a half years of marriage, I guess, to learn it. But the lesson is never tease your wife. <laughs> well, uh, a little bit, a little bit better actually. So she, I went for, I was going to go for a walk on July 4th, uh, around like 6 p.m. We'd been inside, it had been raining all day. I needed to get outside, I needed to get some exercise. So I was going to go for like a really long walk. Um, and as I was heading out the door, Lindsay said, be safe, which I thought was a little silly. And I thought maybe that's teaseworthy. And so I was like, Lindsay, thanks for the, thanks for the reminder. I've been walking since I was like two years old. <laughs> Every day I get better at it. Um, and she was like, okay. And so I, I left like 30 minutes later, uh, I slip and a wet patch. I'd love to say I was like defending some like child from an attacker. Um, and my knee got curb stomped by itself. Uh, and so imagine having to call your wife 30 minutes after you tease her <laughs> about her saying, be safe to say you're bleeding. You can't move. Will you come get in the car and pick me up? <laughs> Um, so I'm not saying she did it. <laughs> I'm just saying I want the investigation to proceed on its own and come to an independent conclusion. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what comes out of that. A couple of, oh, she hasn't stopped, I don't think. <laughs> A couple uh, announcements before we get into the text this morning. Um, we have our Elephant in the Room series coming up, which is going to be three weeks, Wednesday nights. Uh, uh, August 1st, August 8th, and August 15th, where we tackle some controversial topics. We've done this most summers for the past few years here at the church. It's always been a great time. Um, our topics this year are the questions of hell. Um, there's different versions of hell that certain Christians believe in, so we'll kind of weigh the pros and the cons. Um, the purpose of the series is not to come to an answer. 
It's definitely not for the church to endorse one viewpoint over another viewpoint. It's to get different people who believe different things to have a cordial Christ-like interaction with one another, um, embodying their positions. So we'll look at hell, not directly, and then we will tackle issues um, concerning uh, homosexuality, things of that nature. Uh, And then lastly, we will look at what we should do, how we should react when um, laws of the land, um, whether here in America or wherever you are really, might conflict with certain parts of our Christian faith. Um, and so always an interesting topic. So we're looking forward to that. I um, also want to let you know that we've got some free yoga classes coming up here at the church. Um, Adriana Meza, our resident artist uh, and yoga instructor, uh, will be leading them. They begin on the 21st. Um, and if you need more details, you want more details, you just come talk to her and she will hook you up for that. Um, So with that said, let's get into it, okay? We're going through the book of Galatians right now in a sermon series. So if you have your Bible, um, open up with me to Galatians 2. If you don't have a Bible and you want to be with us, there might be one there underneath uh, one of the chairs around you. We'll be in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 10 verses in Galatians 2. Before we do that, let me recap you what we've seen so far in Galatians 1. Um, Galatians is a book written by the Apostle Paul to some churches in Galatia that he had founded. The issue here is that some false teachers had come in after Paul and were kind of subverting his message, kind of um, adding some things to his gospel and uh, undermining his authority of the churches in Galatia. And so we saw in chapter 1 a very aggressive pushback by the Apostle Paul. Um, He tells them that if there's any gospel preached that's not his gospel, it's a distortion. Um, and it is a lie. And like any distortion of the gospel, it's going to be very dangerous. Um, we saw at the end of chapter 1 that he starts appealing more to his authority for the Galatians to trust him. And so he does this in a couple ways. He says, look, I'm an apostle, and I'm even unique among the apostles because I learned the gospel straight from the risen Jesus. You know the story of Paul. He was kicked down on his road to Damascus. The risen Lord appeared to him. Um, and Paul will say, look, I wasn't taught by anybody. I didn't follow Jesus around while he was alive. I didn't go and consult with anybody. Uh, One of the disciples didn't teach me. I knew nothing, very little at least. And then Jesus intervened dramatically, taught me and gave me a mission, which was to go and preach to the Gentiles. Then he said, I also wasn't sent from the Jerusalem church. Uh, The Jerusalem church is like the mother church in early Christianity. That's where the the center of the action was. Um, And what the false teachers who had come into Galatia were saying is that they were from Jerusalem and they needed to correct some of Paul's gospel. Um, and so that maybe gives them more leverage if Paul had come from Jerusalem, right? Because then they could say, look, we also came from Jerusalem and they wanted us to tidy things up. And so at the end of chapter one, he was like, look, the Jerusalem church was not involved at all in me coming to you as an apostle to the Gentiles. With that, we'll catch up in chapter two. And see him get a little bit more specific about his independence and his authority. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, it goes like this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, or those seeming to be leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. If you remember, the Jewish teachers were saying, it's not enough to follow the gospel if you're a Gentile, if you're not Jewish. You have to follow the gospel and certain parts of the laws of Moses, uh, particularly the dietary laws and the circumcision laws. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Notice that language. That's important. He thinks these false teachers have come in to spy on the freedom they have in Jesus. Wait a minute. You don't have to follow all of these laws? The Holy Spirit by himself will transform you and get you to the right place? And he equates... Someone trying to lay on top of a Gentile the laws of Moses with becoming slaves. They've come in and they've tried to make slaves out of you there in Galatia. Verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment, kind of like he's doing now in the letter, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. 
As for those who are held in high esteem, and then Paul adds, very Paulian, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been preaching to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentile. James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, these esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the gift or grace that was given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised or the Jewish people. All they asked was that we should remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do from the beginning. Lots of interesting things here in this passage. I want to point out just a few of them. We'll kind of work our way through the passage a few verses at a time, and then we'll look at a couple ways perhaps we can apply this in our own lives in 2018 um, as citizens of America, citizens of the globe, and even citizens here in Sugarland. So if you look at the first three verses, um, what you see here is Paul talking about the, the presentation of his message. He uses this temporal marker. He says, after 14 years. And there's some debate over what he's trying to time here, but most people, including myself, are pretty confident he's referring to his conversion. So 14 years after his conversion, he heads up to Jerusalem. This is important because it sets out a timeline where Paul has been doing ministry for a long time without getting the endorsement from anyone in the Jerusalem church. Um, What we'll see here is Paul narrows it in, in verses 1 through 10. He goes, no human taught me. The Jerusalem church didn't teach me. And then the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Peter, James, and John, didn't teach me as well. Um, Fourteen years after he heads to Jerusalem, he says, because of a revelation. This is a different revelation than the one he got on Damascus. This seems to be a revelation he got in the course of ministry that Jesus was wanting him to go to Jerusalem and meet with Peter, James, and John. So he goes up there and he takes two people with him, Barnabas and Titus. Now, you may know about Barnabas and Titus. If not, I will catch you up. Um, Barnabas is a kind of important early Christian figure. If you were here a couple of years ago when we went through the book of Acts, you'll remember Barnabas was pretty much around a lot in the book of Acts. Um, he is mentioned also in another place in the New Testament. Barnabas is an early Christian leader from the beginning. He's a Jewish man, and he's held in high esteem by everybody. You probably met someone like that, maybe in your workplace, maybe in a church or ministry, that kind of guy that everyone looks at and is like, he's solid, right? He's got it down. Um, Barnabas was good at ministry, and in particular, he seemed to have a gift for negotiating conflicts. Um, and so Barnabas quickly became Paul's right-hand man, uh, at least particularly through the early part of their missionary journeys. Um, later, toward the end of his career, Barnabas and Paul have a disagreement, and they part ways for a while. They do get reconciled eventually. Um, but he brings Barnabas probably for two reasons. The first is because maybe if there's conflict, Paul might need Barnabas to try to help navigate the sides as a faithful Jewish person. And the second is because since Barnabas has been with Paul, he can bear witness to what's been happening in these Gentile Christian churches. Part of the problem, part of the conflict here, was that these Jewish Christian teachers were worried that Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the work of the Holy Spirit weren't enough. They weren't enough by themselves. They couldn't guarantee that you would stay in the people of God. They couldn't guarantee that you would be formed into a Christ-like person. And we can probably relate to that. Um, it's hard to kind of like think of a kid. It's hard to trust that they'll just figure their way out without any rules. And yet Paul's giving this like lawless, sometimes it's called, um, free gospel. You'll see the rest of the book of Galatians, he hammers home the point of freedom. He says, in Jesus, you are free. Don't let anyone make you a slave. This freedom comes from the Holy Spirit. We'll see this in chapter 5 and chapter 6. He says, you can trust the Spirit to do that work. He will convict people. He will shape people. He will get them to the right Christ-like place. You don't have to add these guardrails or these boundary markers. Um, But you can kind of understand why that might be nerve-wracking to people, particularly when the gospel is being expanded to a group of people without all this history and tradition of the Jewish religion. 
they are coming from a background of lots of sin and lots of paganism and all kinds of kind of little misunderstandings and, and different evil practices they might have been involved in. So most likely these Jewish Christians thought they were doing a favor. They really probably thought they were adding on to Paul's gospel in a helpful way. They thought maybe Paul had kind of eased down the requirements of his gospel. It's a lot easier to convert Gentile folk when you don't make them get circumcised than it is when you make them. And so they thought maybe, maybe you just made the gospel a lot easier because you were trying to like appeal to them. And so we're going to come in, clean things up, and tell them you have to actually make some more sacrifice than that. But Paul, though, this is a, a non-starter. This is absolutely non-negotiable. Paul's okay with Jewish people living under the law, so they don't have to. But he's not okay with Jewish um, identity, Jewish Christianity being a requirement for Gentiles. See the difference there? Paul himself will sometimes live under the law and sometimes not. For him, it doesn't seem to really matter. What really makes him upset, for, for him, distorts the gospel completely, is when you make it tied completely to the gospel. When you force these things on someone else who has decided to follow Jesus and live in the Spirit. So he has Barnabas there, and Barnabas can say, check it out. These Christians actually are people of God. They're actually coming out of paganism. Guess what? The Holy Spirit is actually working in them. And this was, if you've ever read Acts 15, this was actually the main argument to get the early Jewish Christians to accept um, the Gentiles being able to be Christians as Gentiles. Um, It was this fact. Is the Spirit of God in them? Is there evidence of the Spirit working in and through them? Because if there is, that means God has adopted them. And if God has adopted them, but you don't think they've yet been adopted, where's the problem at? Is the problem that God has made a mistake with his boundaries? Or is the problem perhaps that you are too attached to some cultural, historic traditions? And you should instead get in line with what God is doing in this new day. This continues to be a very difficult thing for the church to figure out. It was difficult and bold back then. It's hard for us to really imagine how big of a change and scary of a change this was to allow the gospel to go to the Gentiles with just the Holy Spirit, right? That sounds kind of vague sometimes for us. It was probably a little vague maybe for them sometimes too. Wait, we're just going to trust that they'll like listen to the Spirit and they'll be fine. They don't need us to come in and give them these real like Titan rules. But Christians still try to do this discernment process um, when disagreements come up. Um, Throughout history, Christians have had to ponder whether new groups of people can be Christians. And whether new groups of people can be Christians while still engaging in certain behavior that up until that point was considered unacceptable. And Christians have to do this hard work of going, well, is the Spirit working there? Are there fruits of the Spirit? Are these people being transformed? Because if so, how dare we? keep these people out of fellowship when they're in God's family. This is not easy work. This is very, very hard. Because there's a thin line between things that are non-negotiable, right? You cannot be a murderer and have the Spirit live in you. At least you need to be, like, murdering less and less and less (laughs) until eventually you're murdering no longer. Maybe it's a progressive thing. But those two things just aren't compatible, right? That's an easy one. But it gets gray pretty quickly. And we have to do this hard work of discerning where that line is. He also brings with him Titus. That's Barnabas. He brings with him Titus. Titus is a little less known. For purposes here, he's just really a Gentile. He's Greek. Um, and he has bought into the gospel, started following Jesus, living in the Spirit. And by the way, he's not circumcised. In fact, he was eating bacon that morning. He's on like a keto, all-carb diet, or no-carb diet, just full hamburgers every meal. And he brings him as kind of like a test case, a case study. Look at this guy. You can smell the bacon on him, right? (laughs) I don't want you to look, but if you did, he's not circumcised either. Let's see if he's a Christian. Let's see if just following Jesus, let's see if Jesus' gospel has enough power, let's see if the Spirit is trustworthy enough 
for this guy to be shaped into the image of Christ. So he comes, Paul comes armed. In one hand, Barnabas, in the other hand, Titus. And so he comes and he meets privately with the Jerusalem pillars. It's interesting because it seems here he's almost willing to be a little vulnerable. Uh, He says here um, in verse 2, he wanted to be sure I wasn't running in vain. This is a vulnerability from Paul you don't often get. To be sure, Paul wouldn't have cared if the pillars argued with him and disagreed with him. He would have stood up to them like standing up to the false teachers in Galatia. But there seems to be a part of him, he lets peek out here, that was happy that they agreed. That was happy that they endorsed what he was doing. We look on verses 4 and 5 as we continue. Paul starts to talk about the opposition he's received to his message. These false believers have infiltrated the ranks to spy and to make them slaves. This, for Paul, is why this is such a big problem, why this is a gospel issue. Um, They wanted to make them slaves. They wanted to add the law of Moses without the freedom of the Spirit. And for Paul, we'll see very clearly, he argues simultaneously later in this book, the Spirit brings by himself, both at the same time, crazy freedom and crazy holiness. Radical freedom and radical Christ-likeness. And the moment you step out of that life in the Spirit, that discerning in the Spirit, that following the promptings of the Spirit, you need to add something else. And when you add something else, you've kind of stepped off the gospel train and stepped onto like a, maybe a behavior modification program, stepped on like a self-help program. And, and Paul thinks, one, it just doesn't have the same power. It's not going to work. I don't know if you've ever tried to change like a deeply engraved behavior just on your own. Depending on how much willpower you are, have, you know, it may go better um, than others. For me, there were a lot of habits in my life that I had tried repeatedly to get rid of that I was never really able to get a handle on until I started following Jesus. Until I let the gospel, the grace given to me, change the way I think and change the things I want and change the way I evaluate certain things. It took the spirit working in me to accomplish things. that Otherwise, just honestly, it never would have been accomplished. And the gospel is a gospel of power for Paul. It's a gospel, like we said, that's able to take you right now into a new life so that you could talk about your former life. For Paul, I used to kill Christians. Now I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. For you and I, a lot of us in here have all kinds of stories. Before this and now new creation, transformation. If we keep reading, and look through uh, verses 6 through 10, and we see Paul talking about um, the unity that he found with the Jerusalem pillars about Paul's own message. Um, it's very clear the leaders of Jerusalem endorsed his gospel. They said it's the same as our gospel. Now, this strikes you perhaps as a little bit, you know, odd or interesting. Um, it had been a few years since I studied the book of Galatians. Uh, when we started this series up. And I, I was reading through it before I looked at like any commentaries or, or listened to anything. And when I turned the corner in chapter 2, I was struck. I was like, this is odd. In chapter 1, he can't go far enough to separate himself from anyone's approval. And then in chapter 2, he's like, but they, they're on my side. And people have wondered, like, is, this, is he turning a page on his argument? Is he kind of contradicting what he was doing in chapter 1? I think if you really think about it and look closely, it's not necessarily a contradiction. He's, he's using the other side of the argument. So he still maintains that his gospel was independent. The source of his gospel was independent from the Jerusalem church and from the Jerusalem pillars. That was his real thrust in chapter 1. Now he's saying this independent gospel, when I shared it with them, they endorsed. Paul's willing to use all of the good evidence that he has. We think this undercuts the the Jewish Christian um, false teachers in a severe way because they were probably saying, Peter, James, and John, the Jerusalem church, they sent us to clean up Paul's mess. And so if Paul can establish, look, when we met, they said this is what you should be doing. Keep doing the same thing. Then it takes away a lot of leverage um, from these these people come in to spy and make them slaves. So the Jerusalem leaders acted in a couple of different ways. 
um, three ways we'll, we'll look at in the text here. Um, the first one, verse 6, he says, They added nothing to our message, to my message. So Paul presented them with what he has been preaching, what he learned from Jesus, the mission he got from Jesus. And he says, they didn't put the law of Moses on that. They didn't add anything to that. They approved it. They endorsed it. The Jewish pillars, as he calls them, Peter, James, and John, they don't add the law of Moses. They understand this would be enslaving. This would be a different gospel altogether. So they don't change the message at all. Then in, in verses 8 through 10, you see the second thing they do. They officially recognize Paul's calling. They affirm that, yes, Paul, Jesus has called you to be the apostle to the uncircumcised. But we have a different calling. Our calling is to be the apostles to the circumcised. And they go, and that's okay. We have different callings, but the same gospel. That's the important part. The closest we get um, to understanding this, he says they gave me the right hand of fellowship, um, which is not really just like a strong business deal handshake, and it's not like a cool NBA handshake with lots of parts. This is probably a more technical, official term, the right hand of fellowship, um, kind of like a public theological affirmation. Uh, uh, the closest thing we can probably think of would be ordination committees. So if you don't know, many denominations, they want some quality control over their pastors, um, which it kind of makes sense. You look through Christian history. Sometimes you get some rogue pastors to kind of make a bad name for a group bigger than themselves. Uh, and so they say, you have to be ordained by us before we endorse you to everybody as part of our group, as part of our um, belief system. And so what happens? You have this committee, and you have to study, and you have to take tests, and you have to write papers, and you have to be interviewed and answer questions. And then if you pass, they give you a thumbs up. A stamp of approval. A stamp so strong, actually, you don't have to go back and do this again. If you leave that church, you're free to go to any church in that denomination. You've already been given the higher-ups approval. This is probably what the right hand of fellowship is like. Ordination committees are useful, too, because if there was ever a problem with that minister, you could go to the ordination committee. You say, look, he's teaching some new stuff here. Will you check it out? And they can come in and grill that minister, see what's happening. And then they can say, nope, he's gone off. Or they can say, no, he's, he's okay. He's fine. We still, we still affirm him. This is what Paul gets here. He gets recognized. His calling gets recognized. He gets that right hand of fellowship. The last thing, and very interesting, that the Jerusalem church tells him, responds, is in verse 10. Paul says this, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. A few things that are interesting here. Notice that verb, continue. Paul was already doing this work. In fact, it's a very big part of Paul's ministry. He says, they just want you to keep up this raising funds, collecting gifts from churches to give to the poor. And then Paul adds, the very thing I couldn't be more motivated to do. This is interesting from the very beginning, this is easy to overlook or to forget. From the very, very beginning, preaching the gospel happened right beside this dramatic urgency to help those in need. Very much like Jesus in his ministry. In a sense, they almost seemed inseparable. There's a place in the New Testament that says that one way to think about it would be like this. Christ was once rich in heaven, in glory. Yet he emptied his riches. He became poor, became a human being, became a, a criminal killed on a cross so that you and I might have his grace, might have his blessings. And if that's true, if that's what we worship and believe, then it only makes sense that that would start to play out in our own hearts. That we who are rich, with whatever resource it might be, whatever level of resources we might have, would also want to pour out ourselves for the people around us. Jesus established a very clear principle that the gospel and the communities it creates are to be good news for the poor. The announcement of the kingdom of God is first and foremost, blessed are the poor. Good news for you. God's doing something, and you'll be a beneficiary of it. Now, historically, what's happening is the Jerusalem church was going through a period of extreme poverty. 
um, for probably a handful of reasons. We know around this time there were a lot of bad harvests. Um, and so you and I don't really as much rely directly on harvests to get food day in and day out. Um, back then you were. And so if there were two or three years of very little good edible crops, those who did not have money quickly got hungry, quickly started to starve, quickly started to not be able to give their children food. We know also that these churches are being persecuted. Anytime a church is being persecuted, what's happening is it's getting harder and harder for them to have access to resources. It's easier and easier for people to take advantage of them, to steal. And so Paul is raising money throughout his career to go to the Jerusalem churches. Most of the, the times in the New Testament you see Paul talk about giving, he's referring to this project specifically. In 2 Corinthians, he's talking to them about giving. God wants a generous giver. And he's reminding them, you know what project it is. You know how you've been giving. I'm going to be there soon, and we want to keep this up. There's probably an added benefit to this for Paul. Not only one, it's compassion for the poor, but also two, for Paul, this was probably an embodied real-life sign of the unity between the churches. That there was no animosity at all between the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches. That they were, in fact, the exact same body of people. Because if they're in need, we're responding. If they're hurting, we're hurting. If they're mourning, we're mourning. If they're rejoicing, we're rejoicing. And so for Paul, this is probably a source of pride and a source of proof that this was real. When the Gentile churches stepped up in a big way to help out their brothers and sisters um, who they didn't exactly always see eye to eye with or, or live the exact same way. I want to explore two ways perhaps we can apply this to our lives today. The first is, I think this passage could be seen as a critique of what might be called denominationalism. Um, or anytime Christian groups separate and divide and then start to cast doubts on the other group. Start to criticize them, start to doubt whether they're really Christians, start to not support their ministries, or in worst case scenarios, start to compete with their ministries. This was a problem in the early church, and uh, they didn't have denominations. Fast forward a couple thousand years, you and I are awash with all kinds of different Christian groups. Most with pretty significant differences. And there are for sure probably a few outliers. But for the most part, despite the significant differences, as a biblical scholar, as a theologian, that makes me sound fancy. I normally wouldn't say that, but I get paid to do theology. As a theologian, what I can tell you from years of study, from consulting with people much smarter than me, learning from them, the vast majority of Christian groups are what we call orthodox. And by that, we don't mean they agree on all the specifics. We mean they agree on the big basics. Maybe like the Nicene Creed, the early Christian creed that covers all the big theological things. It's the largest accepted creed in the world. It's pretty easy to define Christianity as those who live inside of the creed. There are groups that claim to be Christian that believe things not in the creed. So the creed is very clear. Jesus is God. He was incarnate on our behalf. There are groups that deny that, and they call themselves Christians. Some Christian leaders call them cults, say they're not Christians. It's hard for me sometimes to disagree with someone's own self-identification, right? Like, you call yourself a Christian, but I'm going to tell you, you're not a Christian. I don't think that really advances anything. It certainly doesn't help with conversation, so I personally would say that's a non-Nicene Christian. It's someone who says they're following Jesus, and in fact, most of the ones I know in those groups are trying to follow Jesus, but they're just doing it outside of what historically and globally today every other Christian is doing it under. And that's a way to have a conversation. Why might you want to come into this camp? Why have Christians always believed these certain things? How does it make an important difference in actual real life and, and ministry and things of that nature? But it's important for us as a church, as individuals, for me as a pastor, to realize that ministry is not a zero-sum game. I don't have to compete with other churches. We don't have to compete with other churches. 
while we should always be discerning what's a gospel issue or a non-negotiable issue, we should also realize that most issues are not that. For instance, all Christians believe Jesus died for our sins. He accomplished atonement with his death. Some people might not know that there are at least six or seven very well-founded theories on how that atonement worked. Have you ever heard that Jesus died to pay the price for your sins in your place? That's called penal substitutionary atonement theory. And it is just that. It's a theory. It has some biblical scriptures behind it, but so do all the theories, some more than others. In our Protestant Western world, that's the dominant theory. It can be hard for us to think that there is a gospel outside of that terminology, but there has been historically. That's a very new theory, and it's still a very Western theory. Most of the other churches around the world don't really think of the gospel in that way. So it's important to make those kind of discernments, right? Do you believe that Jesus died for our sins? Because that's what the creed says. Yes. Well, if you think it you know, worked itself out internally, mechanically, a little different than I, that's okay. I don't have to get upset about that. We can talk differently about it. We can look different ways at the scriptures that talk about it. We can emphasize different things. There's different ways to look at almost everything. It's usually when someone abandons something altogether. We have the hell coming up um, in the hell sermon uh, series um, for Elephant in the Room. We'll talk about the different ways to look at that. The Creed, for instance, talks about Christ returning and there being a judgment. There are lots of ways to understand that event and that word judgment. Lots. And probably more surprising to you, lots of biblical ways. So I don't really draw a line between me and another Christian if they disagree on the mechanics of judgment until they say there's nothing at all going on with Christ returning and having some type of reckoning, some type of getting rid of evil and judging it. When that happens, I go, I think you need to rethink that. I think that has to be in there, no matter how you interpret it. But within that, there's different options. There's ways to be convinced. In fact, I've been convinced of one option for a few years, and then I got convinced of another option. If it happened to me, I'm okay with other Christian groups thinking differently. There's always that danger that we'll divide. Um, I've taught theology in a classroom for maybe like eight, nine years now, at the high school level, now at the college level. And one of my goals every single year, because I work with Sugarland, Houston, Protestants mainly, has been to convince them that Roman Catholics are Christians. And you might be surprised, maybe not, how hard this is for so many people. They use those two words as if they were different religions. I've heard Protestants say, and they're well-meaning, I don't think they're trying to be nefarious most of the time, um, that I don't have the same religion as a Catholic, I'm a Christian. I'm like, well, what do you think they are? If anyone has a claim to the title Christian, they might have more of one. Like, you're the newest kid on the block. They go back pretty far. I don't think you get to show up late to the party and go, y'all aren't even really here at the party. (laughs) That's not to say you can't critique certain things they believe or certain things they do. One of the things that I think has happened is a lot of Protestants aren't aware necessarily that the Catholic Church itself went through a significant reformation right after the Protestant Reformation, culminated in what's called the Council of Trent. And most of the stereotypes you have about the Reformation and the abuses the Catholics might have been participating in ended right away. I mean, they reformed themselves out of all of that. Again, it's not to say there aren't some significant theological differences, but I don't know of a real scholar who would even dare try to claim they're different religions at all. If anything, even Protestant scholars go, yeah, we need to be humble. We're new here. If anyone has a claim, they have a more claim. We need to prove ourselves as Christians. Um, In fact, what's kind of funny, also sad, is I've got Roman Catholics in classes every now and then who talk the same way. I had one write me a a little paper at the beginning of class. I asked them about themselves, that kind of thing. And and this offense more than once, but this particular instance, they said, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Roman Catholic. I was like, oh, don't do that to yourself. I was like, what do you think you are? (laughs) Roman Catholic is a domination. Christianity is the religion. Um, there are three big different groups of Christians, Protestants, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. 
Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are pretty unified. Within Protestantism, you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different denominations. It's kind of in our DNA, like how a, a kid grows, you know, in utero, like cells divide and divide and divide and divide. It seems to be like Protestantism. Maybe because we started as a division group, maybe because we divided from the Roman Catholic Church. Here's what's happened. Here's the history. Here's how we have so many denominations. I don't agree with what they're teaching anymore. Instead of challenging them and doing the hard work of trying to reform I'll just start my own thing. That's pretty easy. And so that happens. Repeat, rinse, recycle hundreds of times, not thousands. And you've got where we are today. Um, our denomination, Disciples of Christ, is unique. We're by no means a perfect denomination. Um, we are, though, what's called a restoration denomination or a unity denomination. It was started in America by two people who were frustrated with denominations, particularly frustrated that denominations would withhold communion, would withhold fellowship from other people because of theological differences. Now, irony in human systems works such a way that you start a group, a movement, right, against denominations that ends up becoming like a worldwide denomination. Um, but to this day, disciples are known for being ecumenical, which is a fancy word for saying we reach across the aisles. We're receptive to Eastern Orthodox people. We're receptive to Roman Catholic people. Um, every Thing I study, I'm going through the book of Galatians right now um, for these sermons. I've got a Roman Catholic commentary. I've got an Eastern Orthodox commentary. I've got uh, a, um, a Pentecostal commentary. I've got uh, early church commentaries. I want it all. Doesn't mean I agree with all of them. In fact, I agree 100% with none of them, right? But I want to take the best from all of it and just put it all right here in my lap and just work with that. Um, different people have different things to teach us. Um, they have different ways of looking at stuff that was always there that I just never saw because the way I was trained. Um, they have different glasses, right? You don't notice certain things until you put on those, those glasses. So we need to, I think, be careful that we don't assume that churches or denominations or other groups can't also have different callings in the same gospel. There are churches that I'm not the biggest fan of, but for the most part, I would never dare to think they aren't Christian. I would say, I think they maybe are wrong on a few big, important issues. But I see that they're called to ministry. They do a lot of amazing things for Jesus. In fact, here's what's usually the case. They do a lot of things for the community and for the kingdom of God that me and our church can't do. I, I wouldn't... I would hypothesize, I would ponder aloud whether some churches perhaps are called to minister to baby Christians and some churches are called perhaps to minister to more mature Christians. It's certainly the case that some churches are called to minister to like urban Christians. Others are called to minister to more rural Christians. I had to drive out to Fort Worth yesterday and passed like three cowboy churches. I don't know what that is. I know they're pretty popular. I know they got like hay bales on the stage and cowboy hats and boots and all that good stuff. Not my cup of tea. Um, I know churches in the city that I love. Absolutely, I'm obsessed with them. But I can tell you their ministry wouldn't work here and right now. They speak a different language than we speak. Like, let's break the bread and pour some oil on it. And I'm like, I don't know anything about what that means. Are we opening up the Bible and then like trusting the anointing of the Spirit there? I don't, I don't know. I need a translator. There's just different contexts, right? Different groups, circumcised, uncircumcised. The key is to focus on what you're called to minister to and then to pray for other ministries, to support them, not to bash them. If there needs to be conversations, have those conversations in private, constructively. Don't start a blog. I say as someone who has a blog. Okay. The second last point I'd like to look at with you this morning is I think this uh, passage challenges us in a very good way to think about the relationship between the workings of the gospel and then the outpour of Christian compassion for the poor. It's very easy us to forget how tied this has always been with the gospel. Even easier because we live in a very know, layered world. Um, there's big gaps between groups of people. Um, 
But from the very beginning, there's been no doubt among Christian leaders that the Christian duty is to pour out the resources that they have for the good of those who need them. And if you're really rich, all the better. You can pour out a lot. If you don't have very much, it's fine. You still have stuff to pour out. It's not necessarily that making money is a bad thing. In fact, I know a handful of Christians who that is almost in a weird way their ministry. They're just really good at making money. Never quite gotten that gene or skill or whatever that is. But they make money, and then they don't hoard it, right? They don't have like 17 vacation houses. They use that money to fund worldwide ministries, stuff that would never be able to happen without these huge patrons, these huge people I'm supporting. In my own life, there have been times where I've gotten in a situation where there was you know, a hospital bill maybe that I couldn't pay, or something crazy emergency happened, or I was called on a trip that I needed to raise money for, and there were people in this room, some people outside of this room that y'all will never know or meet, who had many more resources than I had, and they said, I can help. There were no strings attached, so I can help. I'm not sure I would still be pastoring today if that weren't the case. I'm not sure, I, I know for sure I wouldn't have been able to do some other things I, I felt called to and invited to if that weren't the case. I'll give you one little example here as we close out. I've been thinking about a lot about this. In fact, I've been um, talking to a couple other groups in the nation who do this right now and just kind of thinking out the details. I don't know if you are aware of this. They have like payday lending. Um, it's a predatory system. All interest, particularly compound interest, is inherently predatory. Um, that's not to cast aspersions, although the Bible does. It's just to say that's how the system works, right? Once compound interest is your leverage, is the incentive to loan money to people, that means you will always have more money and they will always have less of it, even though momentarily you might help them out of a bind. And so this is a big problem. These places charge like 300% interest. Um, and people get stuck into like millions of dollars of debt for the rest of their lives for like an $800 cash advance a week before they got that paycheck. Um, and so I think I've hypothesized about it before. It hit me a few weeks ago really hard, though. It's like, why don't more, I know a lot of Christians who are rich. Why don't more Christians give out interest-free loans? Like, how hard would that be? I guess you would probably have to find like some kind of financial like regulations and get applications and permits and you know you'd have to have a board in place and people really over a lot of oversight to make sure all that worked um and kind of looked it up and found there were a couple places doing this actually um there's a place in florida where people um can come in and they can get an interest-free loan um if they uh are willing to take on a financial mentor and if they're willing to go through some financial coaching classes um and uh i'm like how many lives would just that change or save? And it's not like, it's not like us in this room don't have the resources to do that. We could gather $5,000 today. How about four people? Now, we don't have the structure built in for financial coaching, that kind of stuff, right? Um, but it's situations like that, I think Christians need to get creative and go, why don't we, why don't we stop asking necessarily how we help the poor, though that's very important, why don't we start asking, why are there poor people? What could we do to keep people from even getting in a situation like that? Because you might find there are some easy, relatively ways to do that. I'd also alert your attention to a starvation crisis we're going through. I know the world has so many issues, it's hard to keep up with them. It's hard to pick one to spend emotional capital on. I feel that as much as you do. I think we all should be aware, though, um, that by some people's counts, we're facing was maybe the largest scale of starvation the world's ever seen in its history right now. Um, today, there are thousands, if not millions, of children who aren't going to eat all over the world. Some actually in the U.S., I'd bet some in Houston, um, and if nothing big happens, we're going to see a lot of, of little kids and then adults um, pass away early because there just wasn't food for them. 
Now, these problems are complex. This is not as easy. This is not a problem of people sending checks. This is like government issues, corruption, wars, right? It's by no means an easy fix. But these type of things, I think, should at least be in our prayers, should at least be in the front of our minds. Most of us in this room, I think, support larger ministries than Sweetwater Christian Church as well. Perhaps this is something you can look and see what you're, um, what the Good Samaritans are doing for this, and what Compassion is doing for things like this. Most of them, I think, are already active in this process. Um, there might be ways you can support that um, more fully or help them uh, in their expansions on those efforts, things like that. Um, I think it is true, though. Those who have received the gospel, received the grace freely given in Christ, become over time so transformed that that same emptying out process works in their own life, that they're able to give of themselves to pour into the good for others. And what we'll find is while it's a sacrifice, like Jesus says, sacrifices are how you find yourself. It's when you die that you get life. It's when you become a slave that you become first. It's when you give up your own preconceptions about what gives you joy that you get unspeakable joy, peace that surpasses understanding. Even the call to sacrifice in the gospel is good news. It's a call for more life. It's a call for a closer relationship with God and with others. And so this morning we give thanks for the challenges that Scripture gives us, for the Spirit's work in our own lives and for the many opportunities we have to live as Christians in important and decisive ways here and now. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, this time to worship together as, as one people. Uh, we pray that you would continue to encourage us in so many different ways. We pray that we would continue to be receptive to your spirit. And we pray, Father, that um, in whatever way you were speaking to us this morning, through your spirit, um, that we would grasp that and hold on to that and not get distracted by anything else and be able to move into that and work on that and live out of that. We pray as we um, get ready to come to the table um, that we would be reminded of uh, and encounter you there um, so that as we're sent out into the world like we've been gathered this morning, um, we will be effective um, courageous, bold ambassadors for Christ. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that all God's people prayed, saying, Amen.